Good morning, everyone. I think at the beginning of every um, every sermon now we should base it on a um, you know like a streaming series. So I should start off with previously in Philippians, and then we could have some shots up there of uh, Paul, um, you know, stumbling into prison, or or somebody, two Christians arguing together, or who, who knows, you know, whatever. I'm not uh, going to do that quite. But for those who haven't been here in the last um, couple of weeks, I'll just very quickly. Just give a bit of a summary about uh, where we're up to. So we've done a couple of weeks looking at the letter of Paul to the uh, Philippians. And you might remember that Paul's situation is once again, he has um, been um, persecuted and challenged and so forth. But he, at this present time, he is actually under arrest in, we think, the city of Ephesus. So, as I've said before, this is not like the really awful um, imprisonment that he has later on when you get to Timothy, where he's basically being cast out in a kind of um, sewer and he's sitting there waiting for, hoping for people to come and, you know, bring me a cloak, you know, before winter comes and bring me the books and the parchments and everything. Because, as I've said before, in the ancient world, uh, it's not like um, the government, the, you know, the Roman government was going to pay for imprisoning you you had to rely upon friends. It's very important to have friends. And in one respect, some people talk about Philippians as a kind of friendship letter, but it's deeper even than the ancient notion of uh, friendship. We talk about friends as sort of mates. We have a few things in common. Maybe over time, our lives sort of draw together. In the ancient world, friendship much more serious. Um, the ideals of friendship is that your lives are so aligned, you're almost having the same soul, as later Aristotle put it, that you actually... Um, the trajectory of your life is sort of entwined uh, together. And I think even deeper than that, um, for the Christians in the ancient world, the notion of being brother and sister is not just a kind of a throwaway line. It really means that we are a family as part of the body of Christ, part of the family of God, sons and daughters of God. Not just a, you know, a nice little religious line, but the actual reality that we have been drawn into. Um, Damon and I were talking yesterday about the idea, you know, sometimes you'll see a church as such and such family church. Um, the idea that the church exists in a sense to kind of uh, bolster families and so forth. And so anyone who is single kind of is like, oh, am I welcome at a family church? Uh, or, it's, you know, basically it's a, a way of bolstering up middle class, you know, family life. But the Christian vision of family is that we ourselves are a family that transcends even blood. Um, Water, in this case, is thicker than blood ties. The waters of baptism draw us into a, a whole new relationship. So Paul is relying on his brothers and sisters as an apostle to help him in this uh, situation that he's in. The early part of the letter is talking about the wonderful way that the Philippians really just reached out to him and helped him out in his difficult um, situation. And, but the first part um, of this as well is also talking in um, setting us up for what's to come is that as wonderful as the Philippians were like all of us sometimes you can kind of you know get a bit flagged and worn out weary and well-doing as Paul puts it elsewhere and so he needs to encourage them to, to continue to stand firm in their faith as a practice not just in what they believe but belief worked out 
um, in their shared life together. And so that br brings us to the, um, to the beginning of uh, uh, today. We looked a little bit, just mentioned it last week, very briefly, in Philippians chapter 1, um, verse 27. And again, just want to bring the context of this again um, to your minds, is that in Philippi, Philippi is a, uh, an established colony of Rome, and so in one sense, like Ephesus, it kind of has this high status in the Roman Empire. Everyone can live under the Roman Empire, but what does it mean to live as a colony of Rome set up by um, esteemed uh, Roman soldiers um, as part of their reward of service? What does it mean to be part of this fantastic colony, have all the privileges that, that you have of living in Rome, um, as well as the responsibilities that come with that citizenship? How great is that? What happens when you actually embrace a faith, a way of life, a whole new way of thinking and living that starts to work contrary to the dominant ideology? There's no sense in which um, Paul tells anyone here they need to give up their Roman citizenship, but he tells them instead that they have a new citizenship, a new citizenship that is in heaven. Now, again, we've covered this before, but I think it's important to say, you don't need to go to Rome to get your citizenship. Okay. Your citizenship in Philippi comes from Rome. That's where it's established, that's the authority which grants that. In the same way, you don't need to go to heaven to get your citizenship, it has been granted to you now. Your citizenship is in heaven, and from there, as we said, we wait for the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will conform our own bodies to like his body, and also rectify all things according to that same power. So that's the end of uh, Philippians chapter 3. All right, so what does it mean in the context, live in the context of that? You'll remember from last time, the, oh, we won't read all of that. This is just really for those who didn't see it before. This is part of a, um, a uh, proclamation that you can find in different parts of uh, the Mediterranean. I think there's two complete um, parts of this. But I've highlighted there a couple of the words that you'll recognise. Just so you think, when you use words like gospel or saviour and so forth, they had a meaning already there in the first century. Okay? They weren't kind of the, w wasn't the political, social, cultural world. And then over here, the religious world. And then oh, here's some religious words like... Um, gospel and um, salvation and saviour and so forth. I'll just quickly read it out though. Since the providence that has divinely ordered our existence has applied her energy and zeal and has brought to life the most perfect good in Augustus, whom he, she filled with virtues for the benefit of mankind, bestowing him upon us and their descendants as a saviour who has put an end to war and will order peace. Caesar who by his epiphany exceeded the hopes of those who prophesied the good tidings, gospel, gospel Caesar, not only outgoing benefactors of the past, but also allowing no hope of greater benefactions in the future. And since the birthday of the God first brought to the world the good tidings, residing in him, for that reason, with good fortune and safety, the Greeks of Asia have decided that the new year in all cities shall be based on 21st September, birthday of Augustus. 
forgot to celebrate it this year. Um, apologies <laughs> there. Um, hooray. What's that? You, you, do you remember? <laughs> yeah. It, it could be it, in um, like in the ancient world, even in terms of philosophies and something like that. What, once something kind of has a sense of what we would sort of capitalise, um, it can actually become a, a god. So if you think about uh, justice or justitia in the in the ancient world, is like justice. It's the idea of justice. Let's worship justice as well. It can actually become more than that. Uh, you know, yet another part of the pantheon, as it were. So I don't know exact origins of this particular one because um, uh, Greek philosophy it can sort of be a way of talking about the behind the scenes God or reason or things like that so hard to know precisely but I don't know whether it's an actual goddess per se yeah could easily rhyme with that so that Roman that Greek could well meld together Maybe those two gods even got together. Don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Don't want to speculate on that one. Okay. So, um, so in this context, at least we have um, this notion that there is a true world ruler. That there is, in fact, something bestowed by providence or God or the gods um, to rule the world and therefore the proclamation should go out. Glad tidings, gospel. Here is um, the true leader of the world. And into that very context, as you'll remember again, Acts, 20, Acts 19, I think it is, um, those people, those troublemakers that are already proclaiming that, um, that there's another king but Caesar have come here, turning the world upside down. Um, that's the proclamation that goes to the book of Acts. Here is the new king, the Messiah, the anointed one. And he is the true saviour and Caesar is not. You could sum up probably a fair amount of uh, a kind of simplistic version, but if you like, the New Testament's political theology is basically Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And it's not just a religious claim. That will in, uh, interact with all of your life. Do you, want to be, do you want to hang out, for instance, with someone who apparently is um, dabbling in this new claim that there is another king. If you're a Roman citizen, particularly here in Philippi, could be problematic. People might start to like draw back from you and then it has a, a, you know, an effect on your economic life and your livelihood. If you're a labourer, perhaps, maybe you can't get work. You'll be looking to your brothers and sisters to actually help you get work uh, as well. So there's a lot at stake um, for Christians here in, in Philippi. But they also live in a world where questions about honour and shame and status and things like that are also part of, of how um, they live. And this will become apparent, I think, as we look through here in Chapter 2. So, verse 27, Chapter 1. said last time. It says to them, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that word there, the conduct yourselves, is... Um, based on the idea of a polituma, which, as you might imagine, comes from a word of politics. It's kind of your polit political public life. Your public life in front of everybody else 
needs to be in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Gospel, again, thinking about this is the Messiah, the true king, the one who really rules over things, counterclaim to Caesar. Your life, therefore, needs to be lived in front of everybody else in a manner worthy of that so that you don't destroy the credibility of the message. It's important for a Christian community to actually draw itself together and work together in order to promote and give credence for hearing about the gospel of Christ. So he goes on to say, whether I come and see you or I only hear about you in my absence while he's in, uh, in prison, I'll know that you will stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Standing and striving. Okay, you might think about it in sort of military terms of a, what does it mean for actually to stand together, you know, in the ancient world, the Roman soldiers getting together, got their shields interlocked and so forth. Um, or the tortoise, you know, when the arrows are coming over, they've got the shields up. Standing together. Um, and standing firm in the one spirit. Not just through some kind of, if we can just manage each other and get each other in line with each other. It is actually a reliance on the fact that Christ has given us all his spirit and in one spirit we are actually to stand together. And not just to enjoy the fellowship that we have with one another, but also to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Okay, as I said before, when we think about salvation, what it means to actually become part of the Christian community, enter the life of discipleship, walk ahead with the hope of the resurrection. We're not just there as recipients of what God does, but that's the basis. We're also participants in what God wants us to do. Okay, it's not like there's two parts. It's not, eh, saved and do I have to do anything after that? Does it matter? Can I just do this part and this other part's an option? There's not even that kind of thinking in the New Testament. It is all about you've been called into this um, relationship with Christ and his community as part of his body and this body is supposed to live and act in the world in particular ways. So strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. And remember here that faith is not something, again, it's not just a, a set of beliefs and do you adhere to them or not, it is a way of life. And in the Roman world, again, faith has a kind of more uh, elastic meaning to what we might be used to because it's tied up with this idea also of loyalty and fidelity. So yes, you believe certain things, which therefore means you would live in such a way that you adhere to them, that you are loyal to them and to the object of your faith and trust, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, but it means an actual allegiance. So faith is not, as I said, it's not just an easy believism in the New Testament. It's a call to believe the truth of the gospel and live accordingly. And this will just keep coming up again and again as we go on. But strive together for the faith of the gospel because it is the way of the future, not necessarily in history. That You can imagine that eventually what will happen is that the Christians will win. Um, and so, you know, then, hooray, uh, at the end. So just keep pushing on and everything will be, be okay. It's not like that. Instead, we do believe this is the way of the future. God, um, the Lord Jesus will return, as I said, and all things will be submitted to him. That's also coming up. And in the meantime, we are in a, 
in a sense, a spiritual battle that works its way out um, in history and uh, within our lives and culture as well. As we strive for that, don't be frightened for those, by those who oppose you. Instead, this sign of this opposition and your continued steadfastness and striving for this faith is a sign to those outside that under this kind of pressure, this thing just keeps going on. No one's singing songs about Caesar Augustus today. Turn the radio on on the way here, there's nothing about him at all. I drove around looking, are there any buildings celebrating the achievements of Caesar Augustus? No, but 2,000 years later, we're still singing about a crucified Messiah, which his followers said are actually raised from the dead and is the world's true Lord and shall return. Failed God, we claim true God. And this is a sign steadfastness, this willingness to embrace the suffering that comes from being a Christian, it's a sign to them that their way of life will be destroyed. There is no future in it. There's only so much power one can amass. There's only so much power that can be at work in the world where we just end up doing the same thing over and over. Every victory in a war is relief for the people of the present and then there's the next one and the next one. And who will be the strongest and who will win out? The way of the world has no future. And then counterintuitively, but we believe in the deepest um, going with the grain of the universe, you might say, is the way of love, which comes from the God who loves us and has acted in the world through Jesus Christ on our behalf. It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, verse 39. And since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. All right, so what's it going to mean now to actually think about what's it mean to actually stand together, strive together in the faith of the gospel? I guess the first thing you say, God's, if you want to put this out, resources are available to us. God has acted on our behalf in a way that is going to enable us. The whole flow of salvation history shows us that this is the way to act, what's coming up. There's a security in following that way because we see what has happened to Jesus so that that place is secure. There is work then for us to do in terms of our own life together and our witness beyond our community. And then a few harsh words to come as well so when I do the harsh words bit I'm just basically going to like look at you very blurry so if it happens that, I, that it looks like I'm looking at you I'm, I'm not looking at you I'm looking at a fuzzy uh, thing there yeah well, I'll look at you Libby that'll be easiest all right is that okay <laughs> that's right although Mark is right in that line so um, Okay, so the, the next part then, in thinking about how do we um, actually work together, strive together, the example, basically, Paul's talked about his own situation and you can see it's now emerging as an example for us. And that he's suffering, guess what? You as well. But at least you're not locked, locked away somewhere. Uh, we strive in this together. So he says, if there's any encouragement from being united in Christ... Not that he's not, not an if of doubting, like if there is any, is there any? 
It's a, if there is, you know there is. If you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, yeah, so make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. A lot of that like-minded, together, one, and all those sorts of things, they're all um, tightly packed in there. What does it actually mean to be like-minded, though? I mean, because some people could look at that and go, well, that's a pipe dream, try to get a, you know, the old saying was, you know, two rabbis together, you'll have three opinions. I think probably if you have 30 Baptists together, that's, you could, that'd be like an exponential number as you go, get bigger and bigger. Like probably 100 opinions with uh, 30 Baptists. Being like-minded is not about having the same opinion about absolutely everything, of course. But it is in the context of being part of the body of Christ as our primary identity, meaning that our mind, not just our thinking, but our practical orientation in life is centred around this, the one thing that actually brings us together. We do lots of activities and things like that here, and these are all good things. But it's not the one thing that brings us all together. We like being with each other, and we eat together, and all sorts of things. But the one thing that brings us together is what? It is actually our encounter with Jesus Christ. And that is the like-minded thing. Are we all being oriented towards the one thing at the centre, the one person at the centre of all of that? And then having that same love that God has shared with us in Christ, sharing that mutually with one another. This idea of the mind is not, like I said, just an intellectual thing. Um, it actually comes from the um, a word again, famous in Aristotle, uh, phronane, and the idea is less practical reason, meaning that it's everything that goes into your deliberation and thought in terms of your action in life. And it's kind of that dynamic of thinking and action back and forth and back and forth uh, happening there. So it's not like a mindset, like an idea, a concept. It's actually, this is the very way that your mind works. This is the very way you make decisions. It's the very way your character kind of is lived out through this practical reason. So all those mind words just in there are, are based um, on that idea. And now we're going to have the, the big contrast, what it means to live in the normal way of Rome and then the temptations that are coming to the Philippians back in chapter 1 with their opponents, the rivalry from those um, coming into that community. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Good to read these words. Probably uncomfortable to read them and look at each other in the eye like that. And I'm not actually, again, blurry eyes. I'm not suggesting anybody in particular with this. But I think when we're reading scripture, we really need to, um, yeah, put ourselves to the question. That scripture is putting us to the question. What kind of life am I living? How am I shaped? Why anything like this? And what's the alternative? In humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests but each of you looking to the interests of the others oh, this is too hard oh, I'm giving up this battle 
let's be, let's be realistic again, and and you know don't don't be a kind of a um, you know embrace the there's a kind of a Protestant spirituality that we have that we go, mm-hmm, oh I don't live up to that standard. Isn't it wonderful I can get forgiveness for that, um, and uh, even use communion for that. Communion come together. Oh thank goodness that I've been forgiven. And does anything change? Um, I think we're supposed to do these things. These are things that are expected. Paul isn't writing going, I'm not, no, you're not going to live up to this standard. This is the form of life he is calling them to, that Christ has called them to. And he is, yeah, come on through, keep going. In humility, value others above yourselves. I mean, our whole logic of our society is set up in a way that we have our own stuff and our own things and our own plans. And the whole prospect of political liberalism is the idea that each person can have their own projects in life and they can do whatever they want as long as they don't interfere with the projects or plans of other people. I was do what you want as long as you don't hurt anybody else. The notion that embedded in our very way of life is that we would be definitely concerned with how other people live and that we'd be oriented towards the interests of others and not simply ourselves. That sounds pretty hard. And I think an element of that is a kind of a fear or distrust um, that others might be doing the same thing. Because you do see that sometimes. There's particular people who are just very generous and you feel like, wow, look at that person basically burning themselves out on behalf of others. And where are his brothers and sisters or her brothers and sisters coming in and um, supplying what they need? So this is, yes, something we follow Jesus in, but we do it as a community and we back each other up and um, we don't retreat and, uh, you know, parcel out the occasional bit of generosity. It is about actually living together in a way where we are concerned about the state of each other's um, life and their interests. It's also why if you, if you just think of church as a kind of consumer portal to come and get your goods and services that you need, you're never going to be able to go to that next step where this makes sense. So we are, as I said, we are brothers and sisters. We do live together. We need to seek in humility the interests of others. Where could we find a good example of that? Aha. Well, very next uh, verse. Very tempting to like pull this apart and look at all the different parts of it. Pull it apart like a micro. So, might just touch it up, might leave some of this um, for later. So, I'm just going to skate through it very quickly. I don't like the NIV, as you probably know. If you have a pre 2011 NIV, I suggest. And if you come into Bible study, don't bother bringing it. Utterly useless for studying Romans. That's why we do have a 2011 NIV now um, to help us out. Uh, but yeah, look, you know, we are dealing with translations, remember. It's good to have a couple of translations to compare. I suggest later NIV and NRSV or you guys, what was your suggestion again? NASB and, and the American Standard. Good to um, yeah, avail yourselves of those to compare uh, different readings. This one here in the, in the NIV, I'm, uh, yeah, like kind of a 
in all of your relationships um, has very much, very much kind of like dissipate into the modern notion of, you know, life is all about relationships. Mm. No real sense of what kind of relationships do we have. Everything is in relationship to other things, but what kind of relationships here? Um, the, um, oh, I'm going to bring that up. I've actually got it up there. Okay, so there, there's a there's a two. Mark, you're sitting you're sitting closer. Is that visible to you? Absolutely. Excellent. Okay. Um, let the same let the same mind be you that was in Christ Jesus. Like straight to it. That's just sort of added in. Sometimes with Bible translations, it's helpful to fill something in. Other times, it's giving something a particular slant. So it's just good to know that um, when you're reading that, you're reading an interpretive decision, a translated decision. Um, so just ignore the um, in your relationships and just keep it focused on what's happening here in uh, Philippi for the moment. But the key thing is all of these things are living in humility, no selfish ambitions, etc. in life. There's no place what it means to be in Christ because we need to have the same... Um, Mind again, that same word, the same idea of that practical reason, that way of deliberating, thinking, etc. The um, the mind in action, you could probably say. So we need to have the same mo- mind that was uh, in Christ Jesus. The you is plural, of course, but each of us has to participate in it. But you, as a community, have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. The, Though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in a human likeness, found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is actually one of the earliest um, things before the you know, collection of the New Testament, one of the earliest writings, we think an early hymn that was actually sung about Christ, and it's pretty packed with a lot of um, theological ideas. There's no time to kind of waft on about how much we love this and so thankful for that and a metaphor about a tree here, whatever. It's just pretty theological and um, and inspirational and exemplary for us in terms of how do we, um, who is the God that we worship, who is the Messiah and, and, and what is the shape of his life and the salvation which he uh, brings to us. So we have this kind of exemplary um, picture here. But it's, can't be, it's, not just, it's not sort of just imitation of Christ because none of you are in the form of God and, and empty yourself in precisely the same way. There is an imitation aspect that comes a little bit later. So it's got to be more than that. It's not just sort of imitating a particular action. We could say it's kind of paradigmatic, which is just kind of expanding that a bit more. Meaning, here's a broad picture. This is the kind of shape of what Christian life would look like, and it is that. But actually, go bigger. And it's really kind of a, a, a salvation historical picture of here is the God who um, has come to save us. His nature. Who is he? Um, the means by which that encounter with us and that salvation is brought and then the, um, the future that uh, comes out of that. In saying that, what we're basically saying is that this is the very 
fundamental nature of the universe. The fundamental nature of the universe is not power, violence, um, basically getting your own way over somebody else. Instead, there's something deeper underlying all of that. So even, you know, when we sort of, people talk about Christianity, you might think, nice idea, or, you know, the way you talk about living, great ideals and so forth. But really, in the real world, you can't live like that. That's just kind of a, you know, a nice picture. Wouldn't it be great if it was like that? But the Christian view is, in fact, that, no, look, underlining all of that, what you think is normal and realistic, etc., is misguided that actually to live what we'll call a cruciform life one that looks like what we see here with Jesus is the very what the nature of the universe that the God who lies behind everything this is who God is so there's a couple of little interpretive things here and I'm not going to talk about them right now I'm just going to go with a, a particular way of uh, reading this so who being in the very nature God, the word there was like morphe, and that's where it kind of gets a bit tricky because what does morphe mean? Because if we went back here a moment ago, you could say the form of God or in the NIV it's very nature God. I'm trying to work out actually what this word morphe means. Some people actually think it morphe is closer to the idea of the image of God, so it's not even talking about um, the pre-existence of Christ, but actually, no, thinking about um, what it means to be in the image of God, just using a different word. Good thing is, either way of reading that, you'll still get the fundamental same message, except the way we're going to read it now is kind of a, um, I guess, a bigger picture theological um, uh, conviction in terms of the deity of Christ, the divinity of Christ. So thinking about the Messiah Jesus who, being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Or other people think about it in terms of seized or you know, grasped. And it's where we get, we've talked about this before, remember the idea that in one sense when we think about human relationship to God and what Christ has in its place is that for humanity it's been the grasp. It's the grasp at the things that God was willingly willing to give us. That God would offer us relationship with him, offer us immortality, offer us um, a fruitful and peace-filled life. Instead, we've tried to seize those things for ourselves. So rather than grasping, didn't consider equality with God something to innovate, uh, you know, use your own advantage. Um, what was the... Um, Exploitive is the NRSV's thing. Either way, though, equality of God, Christ not looking to himself, but instead, rather, he makes himself, in comparison to the equality of God, nothing. Kenosis is the word there. You might have heard of that idea before, that actually Christ has emptied himself. Equal with God has emptied himself and takes the form of a servant. Not in terms of emptying of divinity, which was the whole 19th century thing. You got all confused about, oh, does that mean that time Jesus actually isn't um, divine anymore? No, in his action and his incarnation, in essence, he 
takes on this form. So the explanation is right there. Makes himself nothing, takes on the very nature or the form of a servant or slave. It's the same word, slave. Made in human likeness. And being found in appearance or in this life, here he is, a bit like John. Um, the word is made flesh and then dwells amongst us. He humbled himself and became obedient to God to the death, so the point of death. You might think, you know, faithfulness to the point of death. This will tie up with what we'll see in Romans. But the fundamental thing of how Jesus brought about his salvation for us begins with the incarnation and a life that is faithful to God, obedient to what God required him, even to the point of death. Even, not just any death, but the death on a cross. I just want to say yet again, do not sentimentalise the cross. And think about this in the context of Philippi and Rome. So here we are, we're, the, we're a great colony of Rome. We're kind of only second to, to Rome. And um, the, all the privileges and the status that we have and the honour that belongs to us in that regard. And now you've been called to follow a king who has actually been executed in utter shame on a Roman cross. Okay, so again, this difference between your former way of life and this thing that you've been called into is absolutely startling. And remember, at each point that Paul says, he doesn't just go and say, oh, you just live, go out there and live a resurrection life. The example here is actually not to follow the cruciform life of Jesus. The hope of resurrection in the future. Bit of a downer, you might say. No. Because of course the story doesn't end, you know, it doesn't end with a, um, you know, an idealistic young Jewish man that what's a shame he died so young, went out living for people and, you know, and was killed. If that was the case, you just sort of say, nice guy, but worth following. Um, instead, Jesus willing all the way to the point of death to say, remain obedient to his heavenly father, fulfill the purpose to which he's called. And therefore, what? Therefore, God highly exalted him uh, to the highest place and gave him the name above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is pretty amazing stuff if you actually uh, stop to think about what it means for a human being to actually share in this exaltation. Because in Isaiah 45, um, this idea of every tongue acknowledging, uh, you know, every knee bowing and so forth, is basically this is a prerogative that only God has. But one that you might say, interesting then, that human being, obedient human being, has actually been exalted and shares in this glory. And you might also say, okay, yeah, well, I might understand that's also the case, that Christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves, that God himself has become this human being, lived this life, died even the death on a cross and has been exalted. So God has become the man that God now shares his glory with. Of course, being in Christ means that we also share in that as well. Not anything, basically anything that we've achieved, but rather on what Christ has achieved on our behalf. All right. Hard words part really quickly. Blur you all out. 
I mean, what does this mean for us too? Therefore, my dear friends, we'll go back over this next week, but dear friends, you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation. Not work for your salvation, but outwork it. Together, work out what it actually means to live this out with fear and trembling. Um, not, well, not just gentle awe and, and love. Well, fear and trembling, interesting, this is uh, from Exodus 15, where Israel gathers around, um, is coming to see God's presence come, um, come to them. And um, as they experience God's awe and majesty in that, that's actually the response of, of fear and trembling. And it's good to think about that in terms of thinking about the day of Christ, which is ahead of us. We're secure in our salvation, but we need to live and work it out. And we should do so with that same kind of awe that um, Israel had in encountering God too. But remembering it's not something we do on our own. Instead, God is at work in us to will and to, uh, for us to will and act in order to fulfil his good purposes. Do everything without grumbling or complaining. So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. This is probably the, the one thing that really just comes up time and time again in Paul's letters, is actually this idea that we can start to tear each other apart, just with the grumbling and groaning. Like in Numbers, um, chapter 20, Israel did this, always just thinking about the complaining. Always, well, why isn't like this and why isn't like that? And just undermining everything, changing the whole, um, you might even say the, feel of what it actually means to be part of God's people. Do it without grumbling and do it without arguing because this is our purpose, is it not? You may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. uh, That's quoting from Moses there, talking about Israel and the idea of covenant renewal. A warped and crooked generation do you want to be like that or do you want to be the grumblers and complainers or the children of God without fault who will shine among them like uh, the stars in the sky as Daniel 12 3 if you're taking notes to go and see where he's getting this from the wise um, says there that they will shine like stars in the sky he quotes that and that's in the context too of the future idea of resurrection so you see there's all these little things that start to link up um, as you go through as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I'll be able to post on the day of Christ if not run or labour in vain. Um, as a leader in a, in a church, one of the big things, of course, is that you kind of think like the energy that's expended, um, the oversight team as well, the energy that's sometimes expended, you do wonder sort of, oh, like, is it worth it? Um, is it, you know? Are people really going to sort of pick things up and run with it? Are we going to stand together in the gospel? Will we strive together? Will we stand firm? Etc. You can imagine Paul found this and he found it the latter part of his life in that too, where he found, you know, remember, you know, Demas has forsaken me because he's loved the present world. Or, you know, this person and that person, they, they're no longer with me. They've, you know, gone back. They've given up. It's important for us all not to give up in difficult times. 
it's important for us all to think about why it is that we are here together, striving together, working together in partnership in the gospel. So, Paul's words, not mine. Um, my dear friends, yeah, let's continue to obey the gospel, strive for the gospel. Let's do so without grumbling or complaining. Let us aim to be blameless and pure, to be the children of God, to hold firmly to the word of life, to live in God's wisdom, not the way of the world. And then we shall shine like stars in the sky. And also your leaders will be very happy um, that they didn't run or labour in vain. And neither did you in your encouragement to one another to share and teach and mentor other believers as well. It's what we're all called to do, make disciples and lead people along the, the path of faith. Amen? Yes, finishing. May I pray for us all together before we have a time of, uh, yeah, encouraging one another. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the faithfulness of your son and that you have highly exalted him and set him above every name. We thank you for that security which is the basis of our faith. We thank you for calling the Apostle Paul and his faithfulness in following the way of the Messiah through many hardships in this world. And we thank you for these early Christians that we're reading about here. Themselves follow that example, example of Christ, the example of his apostle, and to live in precisely the same way of humility. Help us to keep the central things at the centre. Help us to be encouraging to one another. Help us to work out differences in a way that is godly and encouraging. Help us to embrace the life that you've set before us so that instead falling and failing as we often have read about in the scriptures instead that we might embrace and be faithful in the way that you have called us to please we ask that you strengthen us now as we um, have time fellowship and then go out into the world which you love help us to shine as lights in that world holding forth the word of life in jesus name amen